years ago, there was a uh, research team at three universities, San Diego State, Florida Atlantic, and Case Western, and they wanted to explore kind of trends in religious beliefs in America. And so they, they surveyed um, 58,000 Americans and tried to discover some trends in how beliefs are changing over time. So they, they took kind of a snapshot in 2014, but they compared that to data from you know, a few decades earlier, and they found some interesting things. So I want to share just a few points that they found. Uh, so the first thing they found, um, kind of in the late 80s when some of this early research was done, uh, they found that 13% of Americans seriously doubt the existence of God, 13%. A few decades later, when they kind of came back around uh, in this research, that number had jumped to 30%. 30% of Americans seriously doubt the existence of God, and that's true uh, now, uh, still, a few years later. Um, back in the late 80s, part of their research, they found that 70% of Americans believe in the afterlife, and that's true even of people who aren't particularly religious. Really interesting thing they found, though, is when they did this survey in 2014, they found that 80% of Americans believe in the afterlife. So in this period of a few decades, fewer p people believe in God, but more people believe in the afterlife than before. And that surprised me. My favorite little piece of this research when I looked into it is that... Um, 5% of atheists believe in the afterlife. I would love to talk to these atheists. <laughs> I just I think they've got some interesting stories. Um, but I think this tells us a few things. Um, this tells us that the idea that this life is all there is is hard to believe. Even for 5% of atheists, that's hard to believe. I think it shows that we want to know what happens when we die. We want to know what's next for ourselves and for our loved ones. The subject of the afterlife is really a subject of fascination for us. If you're paying attention to new programming on uh, TV, on the streaming platforms, you see this all over the place on Amazon Prime, on network TV. You know, they're just creating new content all the time that has to do with the afterlife. There's even several more I saw that are coming soon. Now, God gives us clarity in Scripture about the afterlife, about the end of history, about what's coming in the future. But that clarity, I think, gets obscured for a few key reasons. Um, first, you have all the pop culture conceptions of the afterlife that we're just uh, constantly inundated with. So, you know, the pearly gates, the naughty nice list of getting into heaven, the floating up to heaven, the becoming angels when we die, walk towards the light, all of these things that kind of sound true to us because we hear them all the time and we just see variations of those all the time, um, but they really don't represent the biblical depiction at all. Um, so that's a source of confusion. Another source of confusion, I think, is the Bible itself. The biblical literature itself can be confusing on this topic of the afterlife because uh, the afterlife and kind of what's coming at the end of time is spoken about in scripture. It's sort of in passing in a number of places. Often it's spoken of in metaphorical language or the parts where it's extended or it's, it's uh, explained in a more extended way are in types of literature in the Bible that are hard to understand, like the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a specific type of ancient literature uh, that was widely known in the time of the New Testament, but it's very strange to us. It's this dreamlike, symbolic um, type of evocative literature. And so we read that and we're looking for specifics about what to expect and they're they're hard to find. And so that can be frustrating, especially if we're looking for clarity 
about exactly what's going to happen when we die and what comes at the end of history. Uh, even if we believe that there is a God, we believe the Bible is true, we go to it and we find that uh, we can't find the clarity that we're looking for. Also, we don't have people who've gone through this coming back from the afterlife and telling us what to expect, as is the case with most other you know, big things in our life. We can look to people who've been through it and we can gain some encouragement from that. We don't have that with this. And so there's a lot of uncertainty. It's an area we have to choose to trust God. Um, but here's, here's, I think, one of the problems is, is we wish for this specificity. We want to know where, when, how, how is it all going to happen? What's it going to look like? But I think when we get fixated on that stuff, the specifics of it, uh, we miss a more important question, uh, a deeper question, a more relevant question. And this is the one that we're going to look at today. It affects our life right now. How should we feel about the afterlife? How should we feel about it? How should it change our lives right now? Scripture tells us a lot about this, about uh, life after death, the end of time. It might not be as specific as we would prefer, but Scripture is crystal clear on how those of us who know Christ should feel about what awaits us after this life. And 1 Thessalonians is going to help us understand this. So if you brought your Bible, open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. If you're unfamiliar with uh, the Bible, the First Thessalonians is in the New Testament, about halfway through after the book of Colossians. Um, we like to take notes and dive into scripture here at Real Hope, so we've got uh, note cards on the table and highlighters and pens. Feel free to follow along, highlight uh, as we try to really engage this text and, um, and draw out from it everything that God has for us to learn. Uh, so just quick background, if you haven't been here the last few weeks, we've been walking through this letter, First Thessalonians. Um, here's kind of the snapshot of what happened with this ancient church. So uh, the Apostle Paul, who was kind of one of the key leaders in the first century church, he was traveling around the Mediterranean world, um, sharing the gospel, going to cities where people had never heard of Jesus before. And he, he started a church in uh, the city of Thessalonica. There's where it's located up there, the Blue Star, kind of the northern part of Greece. Um, he started this church there, and there were a handful of believers. And just when Paul was getting started, helping them understand their faith and get rooted in their faith, he was forced out of town by people who you know, were not supportive of the message, and, and he was being threatened. And so he left. And so Paul felt great concern for this church because they're brand new. They're the only Christians in this large city. They're facing persecution. So 1 Thessalonians is his letter back to them. Once he's out of town, he's writing back to them to encourage them and strengthen them in their new faith. Um, one of the things that seems to have happened in Paul's absence is that one or more of the Christians in Thessalonica died. And though those believers didn't know what to make of this. You know, they heard Paul talk about Jesus coming back, but these people have died. So, like, did they miss out on this? They're, they're worried about it. They, they just need some encouragement on this subject. And so Paul um, is uh, writing back to them to give them assurance about the afterlife, the end of history, all these kinds of things. And the assurance he gives them is meant to give us assurance as well. Uh, so let me just quickly pray that God would open our hearts as we go into his word. Lord Jesus, we pray that um, this would be a time where you speak to our hearts. Lord, we, we all come in here with different things on our minds and on our hearts, things we're struggling with, questions that we have, and you know each of us. And so would you speak to us now through your word, help us to leave changed. Amen. 
break down the, the distractions in our minds and the walls that might be up in our hearts and uh, just speak directly to us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So Paul starts this section, uh, chapter 4, verse 13. He says this. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Let's just stop there for a moment. That verse is just packed. And so I want to make sure we grasp everything that Paul's saying. Um, he wants them to be informed about those who sleep in death. That's kind of his euphemism for saying those who died, those who are asleep, who sleep in death. He wants them to know what's happening. And, and, and then he says, if you're taking notes, I would circle these two words. So that, that's, he's about to tell you the reason. Here's the reason why I want you to know what's happened with them. And then I would highlight what comes after that. This is the reason. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. That you don't grieve. Uh, there was a Greek poet around the time of the New Testament um, who wrote about kind of the afterlife. And, um, and he said this. The guy's name was Theocritus. He said, hopes are for the living. The dead have no hope. And, and that kind of thinking was emblematic of the pagan world, the world of the New Testament, and how people felt. There was no hope to be found in death. And Paul is saying, that's not true for us. You can have hope in death. You don't have to live in a world like this. But I do want to make sure we don't miss something. He says, you know, I want you to know about these believers who sleep in death so that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. I want to make sure we don't miss this. Does Paul tell the Thessalonian Christians not to grieve? No. He doesn't. You know, when we lose someone, we grieve. Even if they knew Christ, even if we believe that they're experiencing unimaginable joy in heaven and we'll be reunited with them one day, grief is still healthy and normal and appropriate and biblical grieve those who are lost, that we've lost. I've heard it suggested over the years in various ways that uh, if you're a Christian and you grieve the loss of a Christian friend or family member, your faith is somehow kind of weak or deficient. I don't know if you've ever been made to feel that way or heard that sort of thing. It's like, you know, you must not really understand heaven if you feel this way, right? The logic goes that you know, if you really believed the joys of heaven, you wouldn't be sad, you, wouldn't you be happy for them that they're there? Isn't that better? That's simply not true. Death was not originally part of God's creation. Death is a result of sin coming into the world. And so when we experience loss, we grieve in general over the very fact that there is death. We sense this on a soul level, but it's not supposed to be this way. We also grieve specifically over our loved ones. We miss them. Of course we grieve their absence. You know, Jesus had this friend, Lazarus. Um, he was not one of the 12 disciples. He just seemed to be a friend. You know, Jesus had friends. Lazarus seems to have been one of Jesus' close friends. And he died. And we read in the Gospel of John about how Jesus grieved his death, even though Jesus was about to raise him back to life. If you know that story, he was about to literally resurrect Lazarus. And Jesus didn't say, hey, guys, don't be sad. It's fine. I'm going to resurrect him. It's good. No reason to be sad. 
No, it says that Jesus wept. He wept because he lost his friend. He wept because his other friends were grieving over Lazarus. And I think Jesus was weeping over the very fact that there is death. This is not the world that he wanted us to live in. Grief is right and normal and biblical in a season of loss. Go back to the text. Paul didn't tell them not to grieve. He says don't grieve like those who don't have hope. So what Paul is saying is that the manner of grief for Christians is different. But we grieve. The manner of grief is different. We can feel deep pain and loss and grief and confusion and hope about the future at the same time. It won't always be this way. It's a temporary loss, but it is a loss. That's the picture Paul's painting as he starts this section. Now he goes on to explain how this is going to go kind of at the end of time. Again, he's speaking to these Thessalonian believers about Jesus' return and the afterlife and how this all fits together. So let's keep reading. Verse 14, Paul says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we can tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive uh, and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. It's a remarkable passage because uh, this is Paul speaking about Jesus' return, the end of history, in non-symbolic language. These aren't symbols and things we have to figure out. He's just very plainly, this is the highlight reel of what's going to happen, of what we can expect. He says that Jesus is going to return one day. It's going to be a public event. He's going to come from heaven, and there will be two groups of people who spend forever with him, eternity with him. Those who've been saved by him and are still alive at the time that he comes back, and also those who've been saved but died sometime earlier in history. Those two groups of people will be reunited and reunited with him. Now, in other parts of Scripture, we get a little fuller picture of that second group, the group of people who've already died before Jesus comes back. Um, They are in, Scripture tells us in a number of places, those who have died currently, uh, who are in Christ, um, they're in a place we would describe as heaven now. So Paul is speaking about a time, a day in the future that's going to happen. But you remember Jesus said when he was on the cross, the thief next to him, he said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Today. So there's this immediate place that people go to that we would describe as heaven. But there is also this one day in the future that is coming in which Jesus is going to come back to earth. When he returns, it's a day in which those in heaven now are even looking forward to. The dead in Christ will rise first, Paul says, and they'll be joined by those who are still alive on the day that he returns. And so I just want to make sure that you're clear on that point. If you have lost a loved one, rest assured that, that there is a heaven now, though Paul is speaking about this specific day in the future when Jesus will come back. 
And I love that idea that those who are in heaven now are even looking forward to it. That day's even going to be better. And so he, he makes this, this description, Paul does, of this day. But the key point I want to make sure we don't miss, in verse 17, Paul says this, we will be with the Lord forever. I would highlight that if you're taking notes. We will be with the Lord forever. And then Paul just tells us how we should feel about this and what we should do. I would highlight this too in the final phrase there. Encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. We should feel encouraged by this. We should feel uplifted by this. We should be looking for opportunities to proactively encourage others with this. By the way, that's an imperative verb. Encourage one another. Do that. We will be with the Lord forever, Paul says. That is the end of the story for God's people. That is a hope that you can cling to even in grief. It's an amazing reality. Even if we don't know the details of exactly how everything's going to look, we will be with the Lord forever. And this is meant to encourage us. Now, so far in the passage, he's been mainly talking about those who've already died and how that's going to work with Jesus coming back. He, he kind of switches gears a little bit now in the next verse to those who um, would be potentially still alive when Jesus comes back. Uh, so let's keep reading. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now here's what he's talking about here. He says about times and dates we don't need to write. He says it's not worth speculating when this is going to happen. It will be a surprise. It will come like a thief in the night. It is a distraction to try to figure out exactly when this is going to happen. And then he says there's these people out there saying peace and safety. That's, that's not just something he made up. That was actually Roman propaganda. Pax Romana, which was this, this message of the Romans at the time of basically they had conquered everybody. And they're saying, hey, we're safe, we're secure, everything's good. We have nothing to worry about. And Paul is saying for those who... Who, who feel that way, that they are just completely invincible, they don't need God, everything's fine, they're going to find out in a surprise who the real Lord is when Jesus returns. But then he continues in verse 4 to talk about those who do know Jesus. He says this, verse 4, But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. So he says the church are sort of children of light. We, those who are in Christ, don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear Jesus' return. And he says that we should be, I would highlight this, um, he says, let us be awake and sober about this, about the end, about Jesus' return. And he's contrasting this. He's a metaphor here with those who are asleep and are drunk. He's not really talking about literal drinking here. 
about being drunk and sober. He's saying that in contrast to those who are asleep and drunk, meaning just intoxicated with the world, ignoring God, completely just thinking they're autonomous. In contrast to that, we, the church, should be awake and alert, excited about anticipating Jesus' return, looking forward to it, living our lives for his glory in the meantime. But it's those last two verses where Paul circles back around to a couple ideas he already got into. This is the end of the story. He says, I would highlight it again in verse 10. The point of all this is that we may live together with him. We may live together with him. If you've been saved by Jesus, he's saying, if you're in Christ, as the New Testament authors put it, then you have the hope that you'll live with Jesus and with the other believers in the church forever. And that should lead us, as he says again for the second time, to encourage one another. It's the second time he's emphasizing this. This should be encouraging to you, this basic truth of what's coming in the future. And so we started off with this basic question of kind of how uh, should we feel about the afterlife? This is sort of the question we're driving at for today. How should we feel about the afterlife? And Paul, I think, gives us a very straightforward answer. The answer is we should feel encouraged. We should feel encouraged, not fear, not uncertainty, not worry, not anxiety, encouraged. That is how we are meant to feel. He's telling us that we have a hope in Christ that is so real and so stable that it holds its shape even in grief. Everyone who has ever known Christ, living or dead, will be reunited with him and each other at the end of history, and we will all live together with the Lord forever. Now look, there are lots of details. We wish we knew exactly how it's going to look, the timing and everything. But Paul's main point here is be encouraged. You know enough about the afterlife to trust God, to be encouraged by this, and to encourage others. You know, his main point in this passage is not to predict the details His main concern is to pastor our hearts about this. We don't have to worry. Our future is anchored if we are in Christ. And and this word encouraged, I want to spend just a second talking about that. Um, Because Paul says that a couple times. This should encourage you. And you should encourage others. Now, I feel in English that this word encourage is a little bit overused. And it's just, it kind of... You know, say nice things, sort of warm sentiments. Um, but the word that Paul used in the original language that he wrote in Greek, uh, the, word, the language of the New Testament is a much richer word and more active word. Uh, we translate it as encourage, but I, know the act, I want you to know the actual word he used, um, which is in Greek, and it's this word, parakaleo. That's the word in the New Testament for encourage or encouragement. Parakaleo, the prefix of that is para. At the beginning, which is where we get words like parallel, it means next to or by the side of something. And then kaleo means call. And so it's a, it's a word picture um, that means to call one to your side. That's, that's the definition. I think I've got it here on the slide. To call to one side. That's what the word literally means. It's an image of encouraging someone speaking life to them, comforting them. Not comfort from a distance, it's up close. You know, have you ever had in a tough time someone come alongside of you and and put their arm around your shoulder and just encourage you? I mean, is that not so encouraging? Does God not just use that? That is the picture here of encouragement. 
Paul saying that the knowledge that you are loved by God, the knowledge that Jesus is coming back, that all who've been saved by him in history will be reunited with him and with each other. This is the ultimate hope and encouragement. This is God calling you to his side saying, it is going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And we are called to encourage each other in that same way, to call each other to our sides and comfort each other and say, it's going to be okay. We have this hope in Christ. We know the end of the story. And we are called to do this, to encourage each other, to call each other to our sides, to walk with each other as we experience pain and loss and grieve together with hope. Those two things can simultaneously be true because of Christ, real grief and pain and loss and hope. And that's the picture Paul is wanting us to grasp. And if we, encur- if we are encouraged by this truth and we encourage each other, it helps us lose the fear over the end of the story, the end of our life, what's next. It helps us to be thankful. And it certainly should not make us feel like we want to keep people out or away, of God. It should, away from God. It should drive us to want more and more people to experience the love of Christ and experience this hope. I do want to say this. Uh, if you're here today and you don't know God or this whole idea is strange to you or you have questions, you're not sure about the afterlife, but you want to experience the kind of hope we've been talking about, uh, I just want to tell you the only real hope in this life or the next is Christ. He knows you. He made you. He knows you better than you know you. And he loves you. And he knows what it's like to feel pain and loss. And he wants you to experience life in him now and forever. This is what Paul is talking about. And by the way, he's seeking you already. (laughs) If you feel drawn to ask these questions about God, he's already started the process of working on you. He loves you. I want to wrap up by going back to a a detail that we kind of read over in chapter 4 that I think completes the picture of this hope that Paul's talking about. Um, In chapter 4, verse 17, when Paul's describing Jesus' return at the end and all these believers who have died or who are still alive being reunited together and united to Christ, he said this, After that, we we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them, those who had previously died, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. So when I read the phrase, uh, we're going to meet the Lord in the air, did you picture everyone sort of rising up together and Jesus connecting with his church and, and sort of taking us back to heaven? I know that's what I pictured and have pictured for most of my life, um, sort of escaping the bad earth and going away to the good heaven. That's pop culture heaven talking. That's actually not what Paul is describing here. Um, The image here, the language he used, is something that would happen very commonly in the ancient world. When there was a, a king or a dignitary or some prominent figure approaching a city, there would be a welcome party from that city, a delegation that would go outside the walls of the city, maybe a couple miles out, and they would meet this figure and they would escort them into the city celebrating their arrival. And that is the picture here, is Jesus coming to earth at the end of history to be united with his bride, the church, and they're going to meet him, we are going to meet him in the air to celebrate his arrival and not run away to heaven, but escort him to earth. 
Jesus comes back to be with us. He doesn't abandon his world. Just like Jesus came to rescue us in the first place, he comes back at the end to rescue and restore everything, his creation, to usher in his kingdom at the end of history, to restore, repair, and revive all that's dead and broken in our lives and in our world, and we will experience this. New heaven and earth is what the New Testament calls it. I think we forget the new earth part. The new heaven and earth. And Paul in, in 1 Thessalonians is describing that moment when Jesus comes to earth and is with his bride and begins that process of building the new heaven and earth. A couple other places in scripture that talk about this. 2 Peter three thirteen. Jesus' disciple Peter writes, in keeping with his, that's Jesus' promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And then in, I think, the most beautiful section in Scripture that describes this, Revelation 21, uh, Jesus' disciple John is given a vision, a a glimpse of what this is going to look like. And he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with him, them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That is our hope. Everything dead and broken, gone. Restored life. We are meant to be encouraged by this. We are meant to encourage each other. I know I need to hear this. You know, it's not like I just have this down. I'm like, I go through my life every day. I'm thinking, yeah, it's going to be great. Everything's going to turn out great. I need you. We need each other, the church, to speak this truth and life and hope to each other. This is what Paul is saying. We should be encouraged by this and encourage each other. This is how we should feel about it. So, yes, there's lots of things we wish we knew more about. I think most of us would say, it'd be nice to know when this is going to happen. What exactly are the first three steps after we die? You know, that'd be nice. We don't know that. And I don't think we're meant to. But we get glimpses of it. We know the truth of what it will be like. And we know exactly how we should feel about it. Encouraged. This is God taking us at his side and saying, it's okay. It's going to be okay. That's how we should feel.